You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, L-U-E-E gets canceled! Yay! Yay! Uh-oh, you said the magic word. Friendship? Canceled! Life, the universe, and everything else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I'll be your host. Today, I have with me Lauren Bailey. Hi. Jem Newman. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And special guest, Kyle Joseph. Hello. Joining us from his podcast, Wednesday Night Wallop. Yes, I am. Today, I wanted to go on a rant. So we are each going to cover someone who should be canceled. Can we cancel them? Do we have any power? No. The right believes that leftists have this power. It is a lie. <laughs> Don't tell them. <laughs> it's like the only key you got They left. know. They know. That's why they keep doing this stuff. So I think it'll be a fun show of dunking on people who deserve to get dunked on. And I'm looking forward to it. As far as we know, L-U-E-E as a podcast is not being canceled, but we can dream. You have this power. I don't want that kind of hate mail. No, thank you. We're going to start with what a lot of people would consider to be a surprising person to cancel. A lot of people who haven't been involved in the atheist and skeptic sphere for the past 20 years. So I'm excited, right down to my contrary bones. Today, I get to cancel a saint. (laughs) Jem is nodding. Jem knows exactly (laughs) where this is going. (laughs) I am not excited, however, to agree vehemently with Christopher Hitchens on any subject. (laughs) (laughs) Unsurprisingly, Hitchens was the loudest Western voice calling out this modern-day saint for her hypocrisy. Of course, I'm sure you've guessed, I'm talking about Mother Teresa. I'm sorry, St. Teresa of Kolkata. Yes, that's the sound my soul makes when I think of her. I want to take you all back emotionally to the first week of September 1997. That's going to be tough. Princess Diana had just died. She'd just been killed on August 31st. And then, on September 5, Mother Teresa dies of a heart attack. White boomers are losing their collective shit. But did the queen kill both of them or just die? <laughs> We know that Jem just killed Lawrence. Yes. <laughs> I had no rejoinder for that. You fucker. <laughs> I think she killed them both. Well, she had to get the Diana stuff out of the news. Mm. So she had to kill somebody else. It was else. really just a cover. It was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Glad we sorted this out. So, white boomers were losing their collective shit because these were the only two people in the entire world who did any charity work or cared for underprivileged people. Remember? 
Pepperidge Farm remembers. I do remember. <laughs> Wait, did Bono die that week too? <laughs> At that point, he was still doing like Joshua Tree, I think. He wasn't so big. Oh, he had, right. He had he to had step to fill in. the void. The, yeah. the AIDS red campaign hadn't taken off yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. right. Sorry. <laughs> we were post-Feed the World. We were not... Yeah. Mother Teresa was born in Albania in 1910 and named Agnes Bohaju. Her father died when she was eight. And after a... Several year fascination with holy orders, she entered a convent when she was 18. From there, she was called to missionary work in Kolkata and founded the Order of the Missionaries of Charity, which expanded worldwide. She remained based in India for the rest of her life. She never saw her mother or sister past the age of 18. Wow. She never went back. Just, just cut and run. Yep. Okay. So when I've mentioned this topic to some folks, I've received some scandalous replies like, she helped the poor, and she was all they had, and she devoted her life to helping people. Well, I don't expect people to do deep dives into the duality of public figures on the periphery of their lives. I do expect people to have a basic understanding of the troubles with public figures. We could have a conversation on how do we separate the work from the person, but blah, blah, blah. That's another topic. Let's put that one on the topics channel. <laughs> More than anything, Mother Teresa was interested in helping the Catholic Church. She felt her God called her to work with the poor and lift them into God's hands at their most vulnerable. At their most vulnerable. Gross. Yep. <laughs> Criticism has come from many sides. And about both her work and her attitudes while alive, and what was done in her name after her death. Let's take a look at some of these. During her life, there were criticisms about the quality of medical care provided at her, she called them homes for the dying. They were not hospices. Arab Chatterjee, an Indian physician who worked with the same underprivileged populations, investigated the homes created by the missionaries of charity and found there was inadequate pain medication, reuse of hypodermic needles, mm -hmm. hold it, I will get back to that point, and there was also an ambivalence to the quality of care. He created an article about his concerns, which was then turned into a Channel 4 series involving Christopher Hitchens, who then expanded on the research into his own book. Jem, what was the book called? Missionary Position. Yes. <laughs> Great title. <laughs> I read it earlier this week and reaffirmed really? why I do not like Hitchens. <laughs> yeah, I did some research for this. He is, really, was, the embodiment of Smug. Yeah. Yeah. He is, if Smug had a picture. Mm. Yeah. Another criticism on the quality of medical care, the editor of The Lancet at the time in 1994, Robin Fox, visited the homes for the dying and described the medical care as haphazard and that nuns were deciding on most of the medical care because doctor visits to the homes were few and far between. I want to highlight, as I mentioned before, in case you missed it, we have evidence from a volunteer named Mary Luden who said that syringes were run under cold water and reused. <laughs> Aspirin was given to those with terminal cancer and malaria and cold baths were given to everyone as well as the homes were overcrowded. She did say they were clean, though, as a point in their favor. Okay. Not the needles, though. Just the no. holes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just in, in cold Linens, water. Maybe. Running the needles under cold water. Like, it's not an apple. <laughs> oh, Lord. Another major criticism is her decrying of birth control and abortion. Mm -hmm. Mother Teresa was quite vocal in her opposition to both birth control and abortion, as well as divorce. Because who has any choices? Her towing the Vatican party line isn't surprising, of course, 
but as an educated, fairly well-reasoned person, she had to know that the best way to get people to rise above the poverty line is to allow control of their reproductive lives. This is not a difficult concept. We have the research. Even back in the 70s and 80s, we had the research. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that her views on this have influenced the Vatican views. I'm only saying that she was very influential. Mm -hmm. She won the Nobel Peace Prize, for goodness sake. I have problems with that too, but maybe we'll do a whole show about the Nobel Prizes in the future, so we'll hold that. All of the worst Peace Prize recipients? (laughs) (laughs) Just the whole crock? Like what Alfred Nobel did? Yeah. Oh, we do not mention the rat (laughs) (laughs) The fact that he is still live is proof, I think, that we do not live in a moral universe. (laughs) My day in the death pool is not till 2026. There are that many bets. That was the closest day I could find. (sighs) (laughs) Can't come soon enough for Kissinger. Yeah. So let's put the Nobel Prizes on our list. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll put it in the channel. Another great criticism. Her charitable motivations. I have these major topics and then subtopics underneath them here. Chatterjee stated that the public image of Mother Teresa as a helper of the poor was misleading, and that only a few hundred people are served by even the largest of her homes. In 1998, among the 200 charitable assistance organizations reported to operate in Calcutta, Missionaries of Charity was not ranked among the largest charity organizations, not even in the top 10. But name another one that operates in Calcutta. She's real good at PR. I mean, we couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Right, but for Westerners, and think about, she was incredibly well-known for people not there, probably getting a whole lot of donations. Mm-hmm. Where's that money going? The Catholic Church. Well, yeah. yes, I'm... Yeah. That's, that's I was opening it for Lauren! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I mean, short that's answer, commentary to... Short answer, Jem is right. <laughs> and we'll get into why in a bit. <laughs> Chatterjee also found that none of the eight facilities that the Missionaries of Charity ran in Papua New Guinea had any residents in them. They were purely existing for the purpose of converting the local people to Catholicism. Ooh, Yikes. Gross. Mother Teresa was sometimes accused by Hindus in India of trying to convert the poor to Christianity by stealth. Hitchens described Mother Teresa's organization as a cult that promoted suffering and did not help those in need. He used the C word, the cult word. He said that Mother Teresa's own words on poverty proved that her intention was not to help people. And he quoted her words at a 1981 press conference, which she was asked, do you teach the poor to endure their lot? She replied, I think it is very beautiful for the poor to accept their lot, to share it with the passion of Christ. I think the world is being much helped by the suffering of the poor people. Like, what? How? How? Why? Any other questions? Yeah, that was always what really struck me was when it became clear that she, the suffering wasn't an accident. It was on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because the more suffering there was, the more noble it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like you were noble or even moral, ethical. Like she had, she had this whole framework built up about how suffering was good. Yeah. It's a quote you'd expect from a Walton rather than Mother Teresa. Yeah. <laughs> well, have you seen The Price of Bread? Uh, <laughs> Fourth criticism. Supporting colonialism, racism, and colorism. Ugh. Yay! Yay. Yeah. Do there need to be subplots? To this? 
<laughs> oh, I Enough said. Put uh, a little subheads in mind, too. Yeah. There are technically subpoints under this, but I put them all in one paragraph. Jermaine Greer has done a lot of work on the subject with regards to Mother Teresa, but I refuse to give any of our airspace to a turf. <laughs> yeah, it was like Jermaine Greer. How yeah. is Jermaine Greer coming up in this segment? Fuck <laughs> her. She hates Mother Teresa. Stop clock. So instead, I found a quote from Vijay Prashad in his essay in the collection, White Women in Racialized Spaces. Mother Teresa is the quintessential image of the white woman in the colonies, working to save the dark bodies from their own temptations and failures. The Euro-American-dominated international media continue to harbor the colonial notion that white people are somehow especially endowed with the capacity to create social change. When non-white people labor in this direction, the media typically search for white benefactors or teachers, or else for white people who stand in the wings to direct the non-white actors. Dark bodies cannot act of their own volition to stretch their own capacity, for they must wait, the media seem to imply, for some colonial administrator, some technocrat from IBM or the IMF, to tell them how to do things. When it comes to saving the poor, the dark bodies are again invisible, for the media seems to celebrate only the worn-out platitudes of such as Mother Teresa and ignore the struggles of those bodies for their own liberation. To open the life of someone like Mother Teresa to scrutiny, therefore, is always difficult. Her work was part of a global enterprise for the elevation of bourgeois guilt, rather than a genuine challenge to those forces that produce and maintain poverty. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find where to cut that quote off. Mm-hmm. I know I make a lot of wordy quotes in my segments, but oh. I feel like one of our L-U-E-E catchphrases fits in quite well here. What should we do instead? Give people money! <laughs> <laughs> There are, not going to say proponents of Mother Teresa, but people who do say she was a woman of color herself. But her (sighs) colorism was definitely on display in the way she dealt with the poor people and the people who were underprivileged in Calcutta itself. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have any quotes from her on that, but they were not great. You can look them up if you want. (laughs) Criticism the fifth. Deathbed baptisms. Mother Teresa encouraged members of her order to secretly baptize dying patients without regard to the individual's religion. Susan Shields, who was a former member of the Missionaries for Charity, writes that sisters were to ask each person in danger of death if he wanted a ticket to heaven. An affirmative reply was meant to consent to baptism. The sister was then to pretend that she was just cooling the patient's head with a wet cloth, while in fact she was baptizing him saying quietly the necessary words. Secrecy was important, so that it would not come to be known that Mother Teresa's sisters were baptizing Hindus and Muslims. I just baptized her! Icky! Icky! I didn't write up a section about her friendships with horrible people. But do Mm -hmm. know that she spent a lot of time with the Duvalier family in Haiti. Mm. Sure did. Yeah. And they always said, oh, we're going to donate so much to your charity. And apparently after Papa Doc's death, his daughter donated a thousand dollars. Yeah. Oh, man, they should have signed that giving pledge I've heard so much oh. about. <laughs> <sighs> now let's move to some criticisms from after her death. People have major criticisms about her writings, about her relationship with her faith. So her, her hypocrisy. After her death, Mother Teresa's private writings were published. 
which I will say was against her wishes for them. She wanted them destroyed, which is a creepy thing in and of itself. Please destroy my papers once I die. Also my porn folder. (laughs) (laughs) In her papers, she wrote about her many bouts of spiritual dryness, where she may have lost faith in her God or in the Catholic Church. Now, I'm not someone to criticize anyone for examining their life or their relationship to their faith. I'm a Unitarian Universalist. Hmm. It is basically what we do. However, I will criticize the hypocrisy of holding these private thoughts while publicly being the whip of the Catholic Church against underprivileged people. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a really fun one. I was telling Ashwin about this one earlier. The fake miracles that led to her quick beatification and canonization. Yeah. Have you heard what they are? Well, I'm going to tell you. Anyway. Excellent. Can't wait. Yeah. Don't worry. It's the end of the segment. Mother Teresa died in 1997. Nearly immediately, the Vatican began the process of canonization, which is a four-step process, which includes looking for miracles performed and people helped. So these miracles. Miracle the first. That the 2002 application of a locket containing Mother Teresa's picture healed a stomach tumor of a woman named Monica Bezra. Both the doctors that treated Bezra and her husband all attested that she had been undergoing treatment for tuberculosis for over a year at that point, and the miracle of the locket was one of timing and calculation. The patient also says this. All records of the incident were removed to the missionary's charity office, and they had no comment. When asked later, the Vatican accepted their testimony that this was a miracle, and so that was the step that got Mother Teresa to become beatified. That's one thing. If you touch lockets to enough bumps, some of them are getting healed. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably going to make more bumps if you're touching that same locket. You're just (laughs) running it under cold water in between. I was was figuring that pictures of Mother Teresa are cheap and plentiful. We have many lockets. (laughs) Everybody just has one and just goes like this all day. And eventually something like... (laughs) I mean, I used to have a fridge magnet that was just Kevin Federline's face on a magnet backing. We could probably try to make him a saint. (laughs) I don't know why I had it. Well, yeah, that's... (laughs) My ex-husband's friend made a whole bunch of them for people for one Christmas or something. So we just had Kevin Federline's face just holding up the grocery list. I left it when I left him. What was the other one? Okay, the other miracle. Miracle the second. In 2015, Pope Francis recognized a second miraculous intervention credited to Mother Teresa where she apparently healed some brain tumors of a man in Brazil, just in time for the Pope's 2013 visit. This was once again declared a miracle, and the process began for canonization. Both Chatterjee and Hitchens acted as the devil's advocate position during her canonization, I don't want to say trials, but canonization process, and which means they literally go to the Vatican and they present their report for why she should not be a saint. And they were overridden, and Pope Francis created her St. Teresa of Calcutta, actually Calcutta, the Anglicanized spelling, on September 4, 2016, less than 20 years after her death. The criticism of the criticisms of Mother Teresa included that she wasn't... <laughs> yes, there are criticisms of the criticisms. Of course there are. Round and round we go. I've only got two paragraphs left. It's okay. It's fine. No, no, don't <laughs> worry, Lauren. Please, it's fine. The criticism of the criticisms of Mother Teresa include... She wasn't intending to create hospitals, and we can't hold hospices in India to the standards of care in the Western world, and she doesn't have government resources to run facilities that the government should run. To these people, I ask, where did the donated money go? 
she had more than enough funds to provide top-notch hospice care world-round for the population she was called to care for. Why did so much go to the Vatican? Any person called to do God's work can see that money and other resources belong in the community and not added to overflowing bank accounts in Rome. Give people money. Mother Teresa made the choice in her life to be a Catholic missionary first and anything else second. Lots of people do. It's not hypocritical to criticize her for her choices. She chose to use her celebrity to bring attention to her work. She chose to not use donated funds to bring her hospices to the standards available. She chose to actively use the tenets of Catholicism against the people in her care. I'm not without sin, but I'm casting some pretty big stones. Stones that she shaped with her actions, words, and deeds. So let's cancel her. Let's stop holding her up as a paragon of charity and service. Let's find some goddamn better role models. And better people to quote. (laughs) Whenever I see a quote that's like, oh yeah, those are some nice words, but... (laughs) That's me. Thank you, Lauren. Very good dive. So my original plan was to spend some time talking about a particular white South African whose family owned an emerald <laughs> mine. Gross! Uh, Ew! Who had uh, some kind of relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. There's that fun photo of him with Ghislaine Maxwell. That guy who's been widely known as union-busting scum, promoting racism at his factories. That whole thing where he was planning to sell dirt bricks to poor people, but never did. When he tried to make that like mini submarine and called the guy who rescued the kids a pedo, and who in March 2020 confidently stated that there would be zero new COVID cases in the United States by the end of April. He also made me leave Twitter. But (laughs) since the Twitter takeover, it seems that everybody has finally come around to how much Elon sucks. So let's talk about Bill Gates instead. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just move down the lines. (laughs) Get Bill Gates in here! In 2010, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett made waves with their much-publicized giving pledge, in which billionaires promised to give the majority of their wealth to charity, instead of just passing it all on to their various fail children. I see. Jem was doing foreshadowing earlier. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Sure sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, the media certainly ate it up, at least judging by the headlines. Bill and Melinda Gates, the most generous humans ever. I think that's fucking bullshit. Bill Gates does it again, donates another $6 billion to his charity. <laughs> Did you notice that? Did you notice that? To his charity. Yeah. Yep. So at the time of this pledge, Gates was one of the richest people in the world, and his money could certainly do a lot of good. Sure, any donations that he made would give him outsized influence and effectively allow him to set international policy in a variety of fields from public health to education. And maybe some of the causes that Gates decides to fund are questionable. But think of all the good he could do. How fortuitous. Sure, the pledge isn't legally binding, so he doesn't have to give it all away, but it's not like billionaires have ever been subject to the law anyway, right? So what's the difference? (laughs) Gates and Buffett unveiled their pledge, 
12 years ago. I'm sure that by now, they must have given most of their money away, right? (laughs) I mean, he stepped down as CEO of Microsoft more than two decades ago to focus on charitable causes, so he's had plenty of time. So let's see. I'm just going to head over to Forbes here. Click, click, click. Keyboard noise, keyboard noise, keyboard noise. Okay, so according to Forbes, in 2013, three years after he made his pledge, he was worth $67 billion. And by 2016, let's see. Huh. That's weird. <laughs> in 2016, he was worth $75 billion. Okay. Uh, these backwards numbers possible? <laughs> in 2019, Forbes has him at, well, that can't be right, $97 billion? And as of just earlier this year, Forbes has his net worth pegged at $129 billion. That's what? a lot to give to charity soon. So as far as I can tell, <laughs> as far as I can tell, Gates pledged in 2010 to give the majority of his wealth away to help those who need it. And yet, in that time, his net worth seems to have doubled. Jim, there was a pandemic. You can't hold it against <laughs> Curious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we know that during a pandemic, people aren't in need of resources, luckily. <laughs> and, and we also know that the internet completely stopped working, stopping all money transfers and whatnot as well. Yeah. Email Gore. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back to that headline I read off the top again. Bill Gates does it again, donates another $6 billion to his charity. D- to continue the headline, billionaire says he wants to get off world's richest people list. Ah, uh, if only he could just give his money away. If only it were that easy. Alas, for some reason, it seems that it isn't. Now, I keep saying his money. But this, of course, assumes that we accept that Gates' wealth is rightfully his. I mean, it's legally his, surely. But I find the idea that any person could actually deserve to wield so much wealth and power truly incomprehensible. I simply don't recognize his right to that money, nor to the power that it gives him. Gates' wealth is built on exploitation in more ways than one. But even were this not the case, the idea that one person should hoard so much wealth and then get to dole it out on his whim as he chooses, I find that truly grotesque. So, Bill Gates, I think, is a dubious philanthropist. He is also a dedicated monopolist. Gates has always been a staunch defender of free market capitalism. But, as we all know, large companies love, love, love to sabotage small ones and will happily take massive losses year after year to drive smaller competitors, without large coffers to fall back on, out of the market. In 1998, Bill Gates, then the wealthiest man in the United States, was called to account for his actions before the U.S. Congress. Emails from several Microsoft executives, including Gates himself, revealed that despite the company's pledges to neutrality, Microsoft had intentionally used the market monopoly of the Windows operating system, which was bundled with Internet Explorer, to destroy Netscape. These emails, which included demands to, quote, crush them, and, quote, take away their oxygen supply, factored heavily into the landmark antitrust case against Microsoft that Gates eventually lost. It was a joyous day. (laughs) It's a good thing that we don't have browsers bundled with operating systems anymore. (laughs) No problem. Yeah. We solved that one. (laughs) Let's move on to another Bill Gates. Bill Gates, serial sexual harasser. 
Bill Gates first met his now ex-wife Melinda when she came to work for Microsoft straight out of college. He asked her out in the parking lot, and they began a relationship while he was her boss, which is ethically dubious. And disgusting. Gates is known, in addition, to have initiated a years-long sexual relationship with another subordinate while married to Melinda. And I don't know the details of their relationship, but the key point here is that this was a relationship, again, with a subordinate at Microsoft. And he is known to have propositioned multiple other women, both at Microsoft and at the Gates Foundation, a charitable organization that he still runs with Melinda French Gates. In 2019, Microsoft's board of directors launched an investigation into Bill Gates' misconduct. That investigation was terminated when Bill Gates resigned from the board. Bill Gates was also a friend of Jeffrey Epstein's. According to Melinda Gates, this relationship was apparently a major factor that eventually led to their divorce. Gates met Epstein in 2011, which is three years after Epstein pleaded guilty to solicitation of a minor. Apparently, Melinda Gates brought this up to him, and Bill Gates shrugged it off and said he, like Gates himself, was a philanthropist. That's not the P word I would... (laughs) (laughs) Bill Gates made multiple trips to Epstein's Manhattan home, and flight logs indicate that he flew at least once on Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Express. Though, contrary to some rumors on the subject and some reporting, there appears to be no evidence that he visited Epstein's island. The one flight that we have record of was to Florida. However, multiple other senior officials within the Gates Foundation also maintained ties with Epstein up until late 2017. Let's move on to another Bill Gates. Bill Gates, destroyer of public education. You guys made these, like, setups for yours. (laughs) Jeez. Gates and his foundation have long championed charter schools, which are essentially private schools that are funded by the public, but are exempt from public oversight, curriculum review, and the like. These schools are free, then, to innovate in the educational space. Listeners might be familiar with the idea of charter schools, either by having attended them, or by way of the right-wing propaganda film Waiting for Superman. The problem according to charter school advocates, isn't chronic underfunding of the public school system, but instead a lack of innovation. Above all else, Bill Gates is a dedicated capitalist, to a blinding degree. We'll talk about this more later, but in interviews on a wide range of topics, from education policy to public health, he seems to see the free market as the only solution to every problem. This amounts to standard Silicon Valley disruption thinking in which a regulated public service is slowly dismantled and replaced by private deregulated innovators. (laughs) Innovators. (laughs) Remember when they reinvented the library? (laughs) Yeah. I like when they keep reinventing taxes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Market fundamentalists have been pushing privatization and deregulation for many decades, of course. This isn't only on Bill Gates. And in fact, in Canada, we are currently seeing this happen in healthcare all over the place, where systems strained by decades of repeated budget cuts are beginning to collapse. Both the conservatives sabotaging the systems and the doctors who work in them are now advocating for a two-tier public-private health system to lessen the strain on the public system. 
And this private system will, of course, serve as a wedge to promote full healthcare privatization down the line. And Tommy Douglas is rolling in his grave. This is something that I will never stop fighting. But I'm getting off topic. My point is that a focus on innovation... (laughs) I feel seen. There's a lot of eye-rolling going on around this table. My point is... There's a lot of head-shaking. Like, we were shaking our heads at the horribleness of a two-tier system. And and our our unelected premier doing the same. Yeah. So my point is that a focus on innovation, frequently coming, as it does from Silicon Valley, often simply serves as a cover to speed up the public-to-private pipeline. Yes. By all metrics, the charter school system has been a failure. But the Gates Foundation is still full speed ahead. I will quote the Washington Post, quote, For years, Bill and Melinda Gates have spent a fortune trying to shape public education policy, successfully leveraging public funding to support their projects, but never having the kind of academic success that they had hoped for. That never stopped them from continuing to fund pet projects. Now, in the newly released 2020 annual letter of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Melinda Gates says that lack of success is no reason to give up. <laughs> well, that that is the line and how you know that it is pure ideology versus anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it depends on what you're working for. If you're working for a cure for a degenerative disease, maybe you keep going even if everything has failed so far. But if you have proof that other things work better for education, yeah. let's do those things. I mean, if only you had the resources that are to solve some of these problems. <laughs> <laughs> That maybe makes some headway. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to Bill Gates, distorter of public health priorities. Mm. Mm-hmm. Every year, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation spends more on global health than most countries do. In fact, their annual global health expenditures exceed even those of the WHO. In- Who? Wild. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Lauren. I have been waiting decades to use that term <laughs> on the air, okay? Yes. Who? 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 In 2015, the Gates Foundation's endowment sat at $43 billion, which Vox notes is double the GDP of Uganda. This has prompted a good deal of fear among academics, activists, and those who work in global health that if they level criticism against the policies or priorities of the Gates Foundation, their funding will disappear. Not only does the Gates Foundation directly fund a great deal of work in public health, they contribute a significant amount of funding to other funders as well. Mm. Ew. Yeah, that's gross. Sophie Harmon, an academic at Queen Mary University of London, argues that, quote, everyone is scared of challenging Gates and the Foundation's role because they don't want to lose their funding. Yeah. In effect, the Gates Foundation's priorities are the world's priorities. And then the global pandemic hit. I was waiting for this. <laughs> We're now talking about Bill Gates, privatizer of vaccines. Yeah. As listeners might recall, the AstraZeneca vaccine against COVID-19 was developed at Oxford University. And the university pledged to donate the rights to manufacture the vaccine to any drug maker who wanted it, guaranteeing broad and equitable access to the vaccine worldwide. The announcement was met with universal acclaim. A couple weeks later, however, Oxford seemed to change its mind and signed a deal with pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca, giving them exclusive rights to produce and distribute the Oxford vaccine 
without any requirement that they keep the doses affordable. It was later revealed that Oxford's change of heart came at the urging of the Gates Foundation, which insisted that they needed to find a single large pharmaceutical company with which to partner. In June of 2020, Gates told reporters, We went to Oxford and said, hey, you're doing brilliant work, but you really need to team up. According to James Love, director of Knowledge Ecology International, a Washington-based nonprofit that works to expand global access to medical technology, quote, Gates has staked out this outsized role in the vaccine world. He has an ideological belief that the intellectual property system is a wonderful mechanism that is necessary for innovation and prosperity. This position has been criticized as contributing to, quote, vaccine apartheid. Mm -hmm. In a 2021 piece in The New Republic, Alexander Zitchik calls Bill Gates a stalwart defender of monopoly medicine, arguing that Gates has repeatedly impeded global access to vaccines. While Gates and his foundation have donated large sums of money to medical research and development, all of the institutions funded by Gates are dedicated to respecting exclusive individual property rights. That is to say, the right to enrich oneself on the back of those suffering from disease. The only acceptable solutions are, after all, market solutions. And that's Bill Gates. That's many Bill Gates. Bill is Bill Gates's was that. I didn't know he was a sextuplet. <laughs> Bill's is Gates. Yeah, we- Bill's is Gates. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's gonna pay. I couldn't pick just one person to cancel. <laughs> <laughs> Laura. That's the deal, Laura. So she's canceling all of us. <laughs> this is why she wouldn't tell us. <laughs> I'm out. See you later. No. Instead, I'm going to cancel an archetype of a person that I see all too often that drives me up the wall and makes me want to rip my hair out. I call this person the Man Doctor Diet Book Author. <laughs> man Doctor Diet Book Author. Or the MDDBA, which is how I will refer to them. Well done. <laughs> For anyone who's listened to this show, I work in nutrition. It's a fraught space, especially in the diet book world. And None are the most talked about than the books written by the MDDBAs. So who is this archetype? Well, an MDDBA is a man, or male presenting, holds a male space in society. Often white or white adjacent, youngish. And I say youngish because I'm going to call myself youngish. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, he might have that little bit of salt in the, on the corner. Salt and pepper is even better. <laughs> <laughs> so youngish to middle aged. Middle aged is totally okay. Hasn't always been, but trending towards more and more conventionally attractive, mm. smaller bodied. And especially more towards that high muscle mass, super lean, shredded look is getting really popular. Blah. Getting a little hot under the collar. <laughs> oh, Jim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this person believes that they figured out what no one else has and feels they absolutely must share it with the world on the biggest platform possible. Now, I'm focusing on the man doctor diet book author, and not just doctor diet book authors, 
because there are women or, or other gendered people who are doctors and write diet books, but there's something particular about the man doctor diet book author. Unlike many women diet book authors, the MDDBA will have a personal story that leads them to write this book. But it's rarely of something that happened to them or in their life or that they mm-hmm. experienced within their own body. Mm. Frequently, something they like enabled someone else to do. Right. So frequently, women diet book authors will talk about, oh, when I hit menopause, I saw changes and then I fixed it and you can too or some yeah. kind of crap like that. Whereas the man diet book author will more frequently speak about the patients that they've seen or the research, and I'm doing some nice air quotes here, Mm -hmm. that they've done, or occasionally the experiences of family members that then drove them to write these books. So that's important, okay? They are separated, and I'm going to keep talking about that later. The MDDBA writes a diet book. Often it's based on an obscure or controversial claim about diet and the cause of weight gain and or health or something. And of course, it has the secret to weight loss that nobody else has. This diet book follows the same format as other diet books. It's prescriptive. It's fear-based. It's restrictive in either the types of foods, the amounts of foods, the frequency, the timing of eating, you name it. It's got something like that. And frequently it has a multi-stage model in its plan to get you through. The MDDBA touts their medical credentials and scientific literacy heavily throughout the book and in their media appearances. This is really, really important. And they enjoy an automatic legitimacy for whatever they have written in this book. They're also potentially slower to receive reviews or critical reviews, particularly, and or criticism. Because they are expected to be part of the scientific establishment, they have more clout than the average non-MD diet book author. He's got a lab coat with his name over the breast pocket, doesn't he? (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. So I actually put together a little slide here just for y'all to see here. So I'll turn it around. This is the MDDBA. (laughs) Yeah, it sure is. I'd like to note on here that one of these is a former Bachelor contestant. But has an actual, like, MD? Definitely that guy. <laughs> Michael Greger. Oof. No. <laughs> no, it's this guy here. That's Travis Stork. He was on The Doctors. Uh, oh, he looks like a young Hasselhoff. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I just thought it was fun. The same painted on smile for yeah. every single one of them. They've all gone to the same type of media coach. <laughs> exactly. Like, they're almost all in the same pose. And I mean, yes, headshots are all essentially the same. But there's a very, there's a sameness about these guys, right? The ones wearing lab coats have their names on it. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes, they do. <laughs> they're either lab-coated it. or shirtless. That's, that's yeah. generally how you get an MDDB. The two flavors. <laughs> I just thought that was Shirts a little versus bit Shirts skins. <laughs> versus science. And I, I put this together partly because I gave that description of what they're like, but you can see physically too. It's important to see these people because they spend a lot of time in the media as well. And so looking at these people and then knowing their history and what they write about tells you a lot about why I hate them. (laughs) And they need to go away. So why is the MDDBA a problem in the first place? Well, I have to put out the very first thing is that diet and weight loss books continue to claim that people of larger sizes or higher body weights are a direct cause of worse 
individual and or societal health outcomes, which is baloney and dubious and bathing classism, racism, ableism, and many other isms here. And we need to stop writing these types of books in general. But I want to have some impact on the world. (laughs) Being the mean, evil, fat person, I get to do that. (laughs) Right. Lauren, you have plenty of impact. We just don't need any more of this type of book here. Just the existence of this type of thing perpetuates anti-fat bias in society, including amongst the medical profession. The more doctors that write this book and get famous, the more doctors are going to want to, the more publishers are going to be willing to publish it, the more media outlets are going to be willing to entertain their interviews, etc. The more Gates money they'll get. The more Gates... Oh, God, no! The Gates money! No! (laughs) (laughs) The second reason these are a problem is that they stick to the prescriptive fear-based style in their books that runs counter to what nutrition research and evidence-based practice actually says. If you can think of some of the most popular books, are you all familiar with things like Wheat Belly? Wheat Belly yep. is mm-hmm. the one I was thinking That was one sure. of the ones that really set off this fire. There's always been these things, but Wheat Belly was a huge one where the author was claiming that wheat was not just bad for you, but actually toxic in its form. So I'm going to talk more about him a little bit later. There's the plant paradox where the claim is that the lectins in plants are killing you. And so don't eat beans and vegetables, apparently. All right. Gone. (laughs) (laughs) Ashlyn's ahead of the curve on that one. (laughs) I'm sorry, honey. There will be beans in your future. Let there be beans. I love beans. Beans are great. Anyway, so there, it, it's very, very fear-based, and it's very restrictive. So what the research actually says is there's very few foods that should be avoided by humans. Things that are spoiled, rotten, actually contain high levels of toxins that would kill anybody. Those are actually pretty rare instances, though, because if you look at humanity and what we as a species have consumed, it's a, it's a huge of variety of things. <laughs> like, it is innumerable, like uncountable in many ways. (laughs) 99% of all new human behaviors are weird sex things. (laughs) (laughs) Mine just popped into my head. (laughs) It's not that much new under the sun to experience anymore. We've eaten all the foods. And there's really no evidence that the particular foods that are demonized by these different diet books are as hazardous to human health as the authors claim. And yet they continue to pick a cause and just double down they on just, it. They just like spin a wheel and like, oh, well, wheat is... Spin another wheel. Yeah, never mind. Exactly. No, no, that's exactly it. They pick their thing and they just keep going. Nutritional science actually shows that it's the combinations of foods in food patterns in conjunctions with genetics, environment, social factors, finances, environmental pollution, etc., etc., that affect people's health, not just one food. The continuance of these specific doctor-based diet books actually confuses the public more because of the public perception of doctors and their credibility and then the prescriptive fear-based techniques and, and words used in them. And it decreases food confidence and self-efficacy among people, which is actually the opposite of what we want to do. It leads to more people feeling disappointment because they were they felt they were led to believe that things would be better this time or there was something different. It's the same diet thing over and over, just with the veneer of more medicine involved. Mm. 
And something that I think a lot of the lay public doesn't understand, and they spend a lot of time trying to bash it into you in first year university courses, is that books are not peer reviewed. Right. You can publish whatever you want to say. Yep. I said, Dr. Hurry, he said, don't worry, I'll be over when I'm finished my book. I'm so glad you said that, too, because I'm just going back to what Lauren had said. The third reason that the MDDBA is a problem is that they're often highly invested in their pet theories. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's an ideological investment for many of them. Like we were talking about earlier, like you can see where the line tips and there is nothing you can do to convince Mm -hmm. them otherwise. And they're going to go hard on this no matter what. So there's a high risk of bias in how they write their books. And like you said, Ashlyn, they can publish whatever they want. And depending on where they live, what they say in their books isn't actually considered malpractice. It's only what they say in individual patient interactions. And that's what allows people like that guy who ran for, was it Senate or something yeah. and lost in Pennsylvania? Thank whatever being might be out there. The New Jersey, mention his name. <laughs> the New Jersey border is that being. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yo, Dr. Oz, what are you doing in Pennsylvania? Everybody knows you live in New Jersey and you're just using your in-law's address over there. So that's what allows him to say whatever he wants on TV anytime because it's not within that strict set. And, the, and a lot of these diet books fall within that as well. Just saying. Yeah. So the MDDBA often, but not always, lives by their lifestyle themselves. So again, they're heavily invested, not just in their research or in their media, but it's because they identify that way. Or at way. least they say they do. They say they do. Whatever it is, they act on it. Yeah. I don't really care. <laughs> they spend $90 for crudite. Right. And a big part of it is they insist on claiming how sustainable it is, partly because they live this lifestyle themselves. But one, they like this plan, How, however bad it might be. They like it. But I mean, hey, there's something out there for everybody, right? So that's fine. But you're more invested. And two, they have the means to set up a lifestyle that supports whatever chosen plan they have. Yeah. So sure, it's sustainable. Fine. So which brings me to my next point. The MDDBA are mainly writing for an audience that lives drastically different lives than they do. Yep. And that has incredibly different lived experience than they do. And it shows. MDDBA are by nature higher earning than most people since they're medical doctors. We know that about society. That's understandable. But further than that, when you read many of their bios, at least one of their degrees was often earned at a very prestigious university, which means that they more than likely came from family wealth. So again, everything about their life experience is often different than many of the people buying their books Mm -hmm. and leads them to, it gives them many openings to have to examine their life, (laughs) but they don't in their books. Instead, they just say, Just cut out all wheat and your life will be a million times better or something like that. Now, I can't be certain on this one, but so I'm going to put a bit of a conjecture warning on it. But I would wager, too, that many of these MDDBAs have never been in a higher weight body. I showed you all the pictures here. These are people who, to me, look like people who are just naturally smaller kinds of people, thinner kinds of people. They've probably been that way because genetics. And people come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. If they hadn't been, that would be right in their origin story. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the, again, that's, that's the big the difference. That's, the books <laughs> that's the, yeah, the lady doctors. Right. If, but you're entirely <laughs> right, Lauren. 
all, when you look at the reasons, they're like, oh, it's my 20 years of practice with patients. And I saw this. Oh no, if you had made a transformation, for sure you would put that all over yeah, everything yeah. you did in this type of thing. It worked for, I'm not just a, I'm not just the owner. I'm a, also a, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, I'm also a client. I'm also too. a client. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it just, it shows the paternalism and the separation of the author and the audience here. And I'm not saying that docs need to have had the lived experience of patients because that's just impossible, right? Not every oncologist is going to have cancer. Not every cardiologist is going to have a cardiac condition, right? It's not about that. It's that if you don't have that, you have to put in more time to try to connect with that audience. And that is not evidenced in these types of books here. Lastly, more often than not, these men doctor diet book authors are far outside of their expertise in writing about food, nutrition, and weight loss, whatever. (laughs) Here are some examples. Dr. William Davis of Wheat Belly fame. He is a cardiologist. No specific training in nutrition mentioned on his bio. Or belly. (laughs) Take it easy. I'm in pre-law, man. thought you're pre-med. What's the difference? He makes very strong claims about the wheat grown today but is not a biochemist or a botanist or anything that would qualify him to talk about wheat. Yeah, he read some stuff. He read some stuff. He's also working more on now the gut microbiome, which is way outside the realm of cardiology. Mm-hmm. Way outside. Yeah, it's about like two feet down. <laughs> and it's yeah. a totally different system. Like. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Gundry of the Plant Paradox fame. He's a cardiac surgeon, but he's air quotes, interested in nutrition, and he does his own independent research. There are so many flags, so many flags here, just like, boo, boo, boo. Not even a cardiologist, a cardiac surgeon. Right, right, exactly. So tell me, what would make you a good cardiologist? Well, I have the ego of a surgeon, but the intelligence of a non-surgeon. And here's my favorite, Dr. Paul Saladino. Has anybody heard of this guy? No. Do you guys want to know what his, his other name is? Carnivore MD. Oh, that guy. Oh, he's your nemesis. (laughs) He was the guy, he was the really ripped guy sitting on the surfboard. Right? Right? (laughs) All the tracks. He's certified in psychiatry. No! <laughs> Is he, though? And functional medicine. Don't want... Don't, no. don't, don't, don't. No. Psychiatry degree allow him to tell people, like, just eat the foods you want to eat and you'll be okay, pretty much? Oh, it allows him. He just chooses not to. <laughs> so, these things, not connected to nutrition. Now, it's totally okay for docs who are specialized in one area to have interests outside of their original area of practice. That's totally fine. And that's part of growing as a practitioner, right? You Mm -hmm. learn something, you grow, you learn more, you grow. That's totally okay. It's great even. However, it's disingenuous to claim that your skill and expertise in one area makes you qualified in another. That cardiac surgeon doesn't know shit about the bones in my foot. Don't you dare say you're an orthopedic surgeon now, okay? Like, that's not how this works. So you don't get to just transfer and be like, oh, I'm a nutrition expert now. Like, you don't get to do that. But nutrition isn't a science, Laura. Well, I mean, but how many total days does an MD get of nutrition training? Like, four? No, you get hours. (laughs) You get hours. I was thinking, like, one per year, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Okay. Yeah, it's about that. Yeah. (laughs) 
few four total days of right. training to look forward to. I'm sure that there's right. not much else to know about nutrition. Uh, gastroenterologists will get more. Right. So, you know? that, and honestly, <laughs> that's, so that's the thing. You notice how there are zero gastroenterologists yes. writing these books because they are the only ones who, like, not the only ones, but one of the few who actually could be qualified. But they actually know that nutrition... And how it interacts with the body is way more complicated. So they're not going to be like, oh, this one thing is going to fix it because they're smarter than that. Well, so they're more ethical than that. Right. <laughs> Some of them might be writing books about how running will save your life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is true. We don't know. We don't know. Right. So if you're going to cross into a different area, that's great. Go for it. But you need to show that you've learned and are aware enough of the field to actually gain credibility. It's called disclosure, you dickhead. You don't get to just say, I'm credible now. Believe me, I've read some stuff. You do, though, apparently. Well, There's like a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't have to, which is why I'm canceling them. Okay, the MDDBA doesn't do that, though. They tend towards the maverick approach, which oh. the media loves so much, right? Mm. I did my own research. This is different than the usual. I knew that the system was failing my patients and I had to find something. And here it is in a 200-page book for $30. 200-page book with 14-point font and very large margin. Also 100 pages of recipes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about the recipes. <laughs> and the glossy pictures in the middle. Don't forget the glossies. And, oh, and yeah. a table for the days and what you're allowed to eat. Yeah, you got to have the graphic visualization part too, right? Okay. Somewhere in that book, it says, caramelize the onions. Five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Greatest lie ever told. Lies. With no oil. Yeah. With no oil. <laughs> well, I can see you have some grammar problems here. And the structure is way off. This entire paper is in one sentence. The MDDBA is more dangerous than your average diet book author. Their books often follow the same formula as all other books, and they follow the same fads as every other weight loss book. The level of research and scientific rigor of their claims is also on par with most non-doctor written books here. What the MDDBA does is that they use their positions as doctors, as authorities, and they transfer that to nutrition which they aren't, but they use that. And it makes them more dangerous and more mm -hmm. insidious because of the clout that that carries yeah. and the automatic assumption that, well, they must know what they're talking about. They must be right. The appeal to authority. So they get to continue to spew misinformed, paternalistic, bullshit advice without any thought for the real lives of those they hope will read their books. Bam. <laughs> well done, Laura. My goodness. That's what I did instead of writing my actual paper. <laughs> Can you at some point repurpose this? <laughs> kind of. Maybe. I like to go out dancing. My baby loves a bunch of authors. We've been living in hovels. Spending all our money on brand new novels. He's a real American. Fights for the rights of every man. Unless they're going to date his daughter. It's time to talk about Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Thank you. That is the response I am hoping for. So, despite everything, I am a fan of professional wrestling. I've sort of gotten back into it in recent years. As a person of color, it's not always the most comfortable experience, but there, as far as creative forms of entertainment and physical theater, at its best, there are a few things that compare. But it's unfortunately where we get to at its worst, where we have to talk about figures like the Hulkster. 
<laughs> the hoaxer. And I think this is going to come as I could probably cancel a half dozen other people, at very least, who were similarly popular or iconic of their era. But the reality is that, in general, nostalgia in creative forms, especially in the world of wrestling, has a tendency to be a bit of a poison pill. It can blind people to some of the problems of the people that are revealed to be rather problematic human beings. And having that joy remembered from childhood is one of those things that can trap us from (laughs) (laughs) really really examining people for what they are and what they kind of continue to be. Yeah, fuck those Care Bears. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lauren. Kyle asked what our rating was. <laughs> so we're not oh, really sure. We've got some. I've got, a, I've got some quotes. Oh I'll dear! Try to clean them up as best I can. Chris has got a beat button. <laughs> I may need to be used liberally. So throughout WWE history, WWE being the largest wrestling company in the world, they've had a tendency where they like to have one singular star shine above all of the others. They're not as big a fan of competition or... The ensemble cast? Yeah. (laughs) The ensemble cast they employ. The preference is to have those people, but to have one person as sort of the star icon above all of the others. In Japanese wrestling, we refer to this as the ace. I don't know what the translation is, but... That sounds English. Yes. (laughs) 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 Thank you very much. So... In modern times, that figure is a person by the name of Roman Reigns, who is a bit of a complicated figure among wrestling fans. It's because Roman is a wank pheasant. But as far as the person Joe Anawaii goes, is by all accounts a really decent human being, a family man who tends to keep to himself for the most part, and doesn't really tend to cause a lot of problems. Not a huge public persona as much as some of the heroes of the past, but Now, with wrestling fans watching his more villainous persona take root, he's really turned people around and has really become that favorite that the company wanted him to be. In the 2000s, it was John Cena. Congratulations. It took you five years to cut a halfway decent promo, but now I'm about to shrink you down to size. A very bizarre individual, but (laughs) certainly a very, very popular wrestler and entertaining in his own right. Well, when you could see him. Yeah, it's true. He was very difficult to see, but... What? It's it's a meme. Yes. (laughs) So, before performing one of his moves, the five-knuckle shuffle, John Cena would wave his hand in front of his face and say, you can't see me. And so it became a meme on the internet where they have pictures of John Cena... So I thought I had a picture with John Cena, but it turns out it's just me. Uh, yes. Oh my. Oh, okay. I love when we have to explain seven layers of the internet. <laughs> well, it's like, oh, okay, the WWE just uses toddler logic? All right. <laughs> Vince McMahon, toddler <laughs> logic. Yes, sometimes very much yes. We will get to that. Woo! In the 1990s, it was in the Attitude Era of Stone Cold Steve Austin, a somewhat problematic figure in his own... Somewhat? (laughs) Will! You piece of trash. Let him swim out there and find a damn thing. If he's lucky, he'll find it. If he don't, maybe he'll drown. I really don't give a damn what he does. I'm going to put a pin in that today. (laughs) But yes. 
he was actually at WrestleMania 38 just this year and probably got the loudest ovation, or in wrestling terms, we use the term pop, of any person in the company, which again points back to that whole nostalgia is kind of dangerous and we need to maybe consider that. And then in the 1980s, <laughs> it was Hulk Hogan. It just reminds Ooh. me of the meme of, like, why are people nostalgic for the 1950s? We have milkshake and racism now. <laughs> <laughs> we sure do. So, born Terry Eugene Bollea in Augusta, Georgia in 1953 and growing up in South Tampa, that does come up later because he uses South Tampa's defense for some deplorable behavior. <laughs> He started in the world of professional wrestling in 1977 and then signed with the then WWF in 1983. If you're wondering why the WWF wrestling had to change its name, it is in fact because, because of the world of the pandemic. <laughs> a fact that remains hilarious to this day. Mm -hmm. Can't have two WWFs. That was confusing. And pandas are really, really bad at body slams. <laughs> copyright, apparently. And rolling. <laughs> so right? bad at everything. They're so bad at staying alive. But they're they don't so want to have cute. sex. Because they just want to like roll around <laughs> and eat bamboo. And, like they just want to be cute and then like die happy and like they don't care about anything. So this has been Panda Cast. <laughs> We've done it again. <laughs> yeah, when Panda Cast takes over, it is hard to stop. Vincent Kennedy McMahon, the person we are not canceling because I don't have all day. <laughs> he deserves a canceling, yep, but just another day. Yes. <laughs> he bought the company from his father in 1982 and hired Hulk Hogan to be his preeminent star of the company. And that was what he was. There were so many things Hulk Hogan in the 80s. He was a frequent figure on all of their television shows. The Rock and Wrestling Connection. There was a cartoon show. Yep, there totally was. Mm -hmm. oh, there's probably still some VHS at my parents' houses oh, with, with the wrestling goodness. show on it. So many catchphrases. Of course, the fans were referred to as Hulkamaniacs. The 24-inch pythons, which were his arms. We're going to go back to that, too. And, of course, the Hulkamania demandments. To train, eat your vitamins, and say your prayers. Well, on camera, brother, I'm a great guy. But when that camera goes off, brother, oh, it's a different story, brother. Oh, brother, 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 brother. My favorite catchphrase was, Andre was robbed. <gasps> oh, so... <laughs> I don't want to harp too long on this, but if you go back and watch a Hulk Hogan match of this era, they're all basically the same boring match. Mm -hmm. He's not getting cancelled for being a bad wrestler, by the way, but I think we're going to point it out. He got everybody got over. The pettiness in there. He starts strong, starts to fade over time, gets hit by his opponent's finishing move, and just when you think he's out, he starts to hulk up where he stops selling his opponent's moves. Selling being a very important part of the wrestling idea is basically the part where you pretend to be hurt by what your opponent does to you. Well, when he was hulking up and flexing for the audience, he would stop getting hurt by that. Then it would be kicking them in the face with a big boot if he could get his leg that high. And the worst finisher in the history of wrestling, <laughs> the atomic leg drop, where he just sort of sat <laughs> he, with his leg out yes he extended his leg and dropped his leg on your chest and that was it that's the whole move that is the move 
Ashlyn is learning my shameful secret that I know this area of wrestling a little too well. <laughs> I used to watch wrestling. We, like, I've said this before. My family was into, like, the pay-per-views and everything. We'd have our buddies over. And, like, I was telling you, my dad made sure if we were going to watch a pay-per-view, there better be three families willing to pitch in for that pay-per-view. Yep. <laughs> we were not paying for it on our own. No, I, I didn't get to watch the pay-per-views. Now, to try to explain that to my parents would have been way too much. So. All the titles would change, and then the next Monday night I'd tune in, and everything would be different. I'm like, oh, well, you should have watched on <laughs> Sunday. I didn't have $50 back then. I do now, and I pay for them now, so I, I guess I've learned to be an adult, clearly. <laughs> Is that what that says about you? <laughs> <laughs> so... He was so instrumental a figure in the this era of WWF that when they decided to hold their grandest show of them all, WrestleMania, he was the headline figure for WrestleMania 1. And WrestleMania 2, <laughs> 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, and even when he wasn't booked on the show, 9 as well. What yes. happened to 4? Four, he was in it, but he was disqualified in a match uh, against Andre the Giant. The whole thing was built as a tournament. It didn't do very well. Uh, mm. Some of these are very well remembered even to this day. The fact that their Hulk Hogan match is notwithstanding. His match with Andre the Giant WrestleMania 3 is considered to be one of the early great matches. Not for actual like wrestling talent, but the fact that he slammed Andre the Giant was considered to be a big moment. Hmm. Like and he picked up Andre the Giant? Yes. Yeah, that, yeah that, I would see that. Yeah. <laughs> and some are remembered less well, like where he fought Sergeant Slaughter at WrestleMania 7, who had by then turned into a Iraqi sympathizer during the real-life Gulf War. Yeah. Wrestling. Whoa. <laughs> yes. Whoa. Yep. All of those things are true. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make a patriot a heel during a war? You just turn him. Yeah. And of course, he had a tendency to work with a lot of his friends, whether or not they were still capable wrestlers at that period of time, which is what led to that Sergeant Slaughter match. Yeah. Hold on a second, Hulkamaniacs. Now tell me which player here weighs the least. I gotta send that player back down to the mid-card, brother, because Hulk Hogan does not job the little guys, dude. He got into some trouble, which we will get to, and had to leave the WWF, where he reappeared in WCW, the rival company, and eventually turned into a the villainous Hollywood Hulk Hogan. <laughs> was he corrupted by liberal Hollywood? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> that was the reason for it. Basically, he was a big movie star. He wore a feather boa as he worked out to the I ring. Like wore black and white as part of the NWO with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Is this when they also tried to make a football team happen? Yeah, that was... Like the... Wasn't that okay? The, never mind. The, the X, the XFL, yeah, yeah. That, that happened shortly thereafter. This is okay. around the same era. Yes. Okay, okay. We're talking two thousands were a weird yeah, time. The early two thousands were a very odd time for wrestling. Yeah, quite frankly, it's more embarrassing than the XFL. And since that time, he has returned to the after the WCW was bought by WWF, infrequently continues to return for one-off spots and matches. His most recent appearance happened as recently as WrestleMania 37, which was only about a year and a half ago. 
This man is almost 70 yes. people. How has he not died yet? That's a very good question. Steroids. Well. That should be speeding up his death at this point, shouldn't it? Sorry, Kyle. You'd Go think on. so. <laughs> so, why do we need to cancel Hulk Hogan? I'm going to get to some minor things first and then get to the big giant gaping elephant in the room. Oh, boy. But. I mentioned that he left the WWF. Well, during that time in the mid-90s, there was a massive steroid scandal. It turns out those 24-inch pythons that he was growing weren't exactly grown organically. (laughs) The vitamins he was talking about aren't the type of stuff you can get over the counter. (laughs) At least not legally. (laughs) So it became a huge problem in the WWF to the point where they basically had to get rid of most of their muscle-bound wrestlers. And if you knew the WWF during that era, especially about the era of Vince McMahon and his particular body type he loves, that was quite a lot of the people involved. This is where we start to get Bret Hart sort of becoming a star, because Mm. he was a smaller person who you could sell as not a person using steroids Mm -hmm. to the general public. So if you want to know why people like Bret Hart became single stars in WWF, it was because of the steroid scandal. They were plausible Mm -hmm. enough. Yes. Yeah. Or Kevin Nash, he was large. Mm. He was just a tall man. So you could He was large. Yes. (laughs) You could conceivably see him as being physically capable and domineering without necessarily being hugely muscle bound. There was a particular interview with her on the Arsenio Hall show, which is very 90s, <laughs> where Hulk Hogan, let's just say, didn't very do a very good job defending himself of his steroid use. And suffice to say, the public kind of turned on him at that point. It wasn't really until the fact that he became Hollywood Hulk Hogan and sort of reemerged as this villainous figure that people could sort of boo that he was able to regain his image. It's a common practice in wrestling to find somebody who they were not a big fan of, make them into a villainous heel, and then they do well enough at that that we start to respect them again. Mm. The the psychology of wrestling fans is a little bit (laughs) interesting and worthy of exploration, but not necessarily today. (laughs) Another big problem with Hulk Hogan was his backstage politicking. Because he was such a key and preeminent figure, he was allowed to basically decide who was going to be successful and who wasn't. Because success meant beating or getting a match against Hulk Hogan. And if he didn't want to work with you, that's not going to work for me, brother. Then (laughs) ultimately you were going to be pushed further down the card as as it were. This problem really reared its head in WCW where a bunch of the wrestlers were given creative control and it turned into a giant mess, which caused the ratings to tank and the company to fall apart, among a variety of other things. (laughs) Suffice to say, backstage politicking has been a problem for major wrestlers for since time immemorial, but Hulk Hogan is considered to be one of the huge figures of, if he didn't want to work with you, If he didn't think that you were worthy of a match with him, you weren't going to get that opportunity. And then there was the sex tape. (laughs) (laughs) It was so bad. Here's the thing. (laughs) 
The most salacious thing about Hulk Hogan's sex tape was not the sex that was part of his sex tape. An incident took place in 2006 that was later published in 2014. He is in conversation with some people while also... I'm going to leave all some of their details out of this because it involves some embarrassing things that they weren't necessarily involved in. But suffice to say, what he said was far more interesting than the blowjob he received. Because <laughs> apparently he had found out that his daughter, Brooke, was trying to work a either acting or singing musical career, but was working with a black man and this mogul of the industry who he does not name and that person's son who may have been involved in a personal relationship with his daughter. He wasn't okay with that. Quote, I don't know if Brooke was fucking the black guy's son. I mean, I don't have double standards. I mean, I am a racist to a point. Which he follows up by saying fucking n-words as if to emphatically push down the fact that I am a racist to a point. That point being way over the (laughs) Very far over the line. But then when it comes to nice people and shit and whatever. What? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Unless they're nice to me, it's okay. Yeah, pretty much. That was the idea. Oh. He he says the n-word several times over the course of this rant. Oh. And basically the sentiment is that he's not a fan of, I mean, black people in general, unless they're nice to him, but largely, mostly black. And apparently it would be okay if she were to marry a basketball player, but (laughs) music mogul or music mogul's son, that's not really cool. They're still rich, though. Yeah. I don't know. Look, so gross. The racist to a point part. Yeah, exactly. He's only to a point racist. <laughs> so this was published famously by Gawker in 2014, among mm-hmm. others who had gotten the transcript. The sex tape was published by Gawker. The reason that is important is because there was a lawsuit in 2016 that he was a part of, Balea versus Gawker Media, that, of all people... The hero, quote unquote, in the biggest air quotes of this story is Peter Thiel. Yeah. yeah. The libertarian investment billionaire who financed Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker as a personal vendetta because Gawker had outed him as gay. Yeah. Wow. Peter Thiel is also the guy who funded J.D. Vance's campaign. Is just yes. just elected. He's the guy who wrote Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, He's also a venture funny. capitalist. So much in the show that Oprah has to be held account for. Hillbilly Elegy just being one of them. Yeah. Remember when like the skeptic's number one enemy was Oprah? Those were... We had it good. <laughs> <laughs> she was such an enabler because so many of oh, these yeah. other people, it was because of her. No, I understand, yeah. but man, if we could just have Oprah back instead <laughs> of everything else. I know. Yeah. Teal also like does like blood transfusions from young people to like no. keep himself young. Like, oh yeah, he's so he's gross. just like a total monster. Yeah, he yeah. wants them stem cells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. And basically because of this lawsuit, Gawker had to file for chapter eleven because of the as part of 
the settlement that he paid to the suit was, I believe, $31 million to Hulk Hogan, financed by Peter Thiel. I mean, Thanks, Peter. There's no good side of this argument. No, no. Yeah. It, turned out, it turned out to be a really, yeah, there was a very, it was an evil versus evil sort it's of an, situation. Uh, one of those alien versus predator moments. <laughs> Whoever wins, etc. So the problem is that the WWE basically fired Hulk Hogan. He wasn't really a part of their company as a wrestler, but is still was still considered a brand ambassador and would still show up on occasion. <laughs> he just wandered around the offices. <laughs> but you notice I said that that lawsuit happened in 2016 and that the it got out in 2014, but yet he was at WrestleMania a year and a half ago. Well, after a couple of years, Vince McMahon kind of got tired of having fired Hulk Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> I want my guy back. Oh my God. And brought him back to backstage of a pay-per-view to sort of half apologize, but mostly blame the fact that his information, private information got leaked, and that's why this was a problem and not the things that he said. And there were at least a couple black wrestlers who were, while uncomfortable with the situation, what are you supposed to do? This is still a huge star in the industry and a person who still has some sway at that time. Clearly, Mm -hmm. Yes. And so he was able to come on to more shows and continue to make appearances. And in fact, was put into the Hall of Fame a second time, the WWE Hall of Fame a second time, as a part of the NWO, that very group where he was Hollywood Hulk Hogan. That Hall of Fame is a bunch of bullshit. Again, nostalgia is one of those things that can be really dangerous and can continue to have people reappear long past their expiration date. It should be worth noting that there is a slight happy ending to this. Despite the fact that they paired hosting duties of WrestleMania 37 with a also a black man, of course they did, Titus O'Neil, who is not only from the Tampa area where they held the event, but is probably just one of the best humans in the industry as a philanthropist and just a genuinely decent human being. Old Hulkster got booed a little bit. (laughs) The reaction to him coming out is starting to be a little bit more mixed now. I think there is a modern wrestling fan like myself that's just kind of tired of the problems of the old era of the business. And to those people, I wish that there was only good news to tell them. (laughs) Sadly, wrestling is built on a foundation of problematic, Mm -hmm. but... There is a better world out there, and there are companies that are taking this more seriously now. And even though it always feels like one step forward and one step back, things are going to hopefully continue to get better. But if I can leave you with anything, I'll leave you with this. If anybody wants to, at the last gasp of Twitter, find a last one to follow, (laughs) I would highly recommend The Iron Sheik. Fucking bullshit! He is an 80-year-old Iranian former (laughs) wrestler who tweets in all caps and holds a vitriolic hatred of Hulk Hogan personally (laughs) to this day, despite having not worked with him for probably 30 years. I'll read you his Thanksgiving tweet. (laughs) Happy Thanksgiving to all my American fans, except that piece of shit Hulk Hogan. You can go fuck yourself forever. (laughs) Amen. Oh, I love the Iron Chief. Yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. Never stop. 
Never stop, please. <laughs> that is a grudge level that I can only aspire to, and I feel like I'm pretty good at grudge. <laughs> so that, that's, that's what I gotta say about that. <laughs> Every once in a while, my friend Ian, who's who contributes the music to our podcast, also a big fan of wrestling. He will once in a while send me like an Iron Sheik like Twitter thing. That's, <laughs> and it's always like, except that piece of shit Hulk Hogan or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> he ends many of his tweets with fuck, fuck the Hulk Hogan. Yeah. So. That's so amazing. Oh, Kyle did not end his segment by ripping his kids off the <laughs> So I am very sad. I do know the flexes. Yeah. Uh, I don't have enough shirts to do that. <laughs> <laughs> My segment also pertains to nostalgia and why it's bad. It wouldn't surprise me to learn that by June of 2020, someone somewhere in the world had put beloved children's author takes an abrupt turn into being a real-life supervillain onto their bingo card. But I didn't start out the year thinking this is how it was going to go. I could, and I might, do a whole segment on why J.K. Rowling ought to have been cancelled just for the stuff that's in the children's book she wrote. But I'm going to try and keep this to why she should be relegated to the trash pile for the way she's using her fame and fortune to promote an agenda of hate, and why continued support of her work makes me personally very sad. You could have just sat in your castle, Joanne. (laughs) (laughs) For real, though. Right, it, costs nothing to, it costs nothing to say nothing. <laughs> you got us all primed. Here we go. <laughs> the first indications came when she started writing novels under her pen name, Robert Galbraith. Ugh. For starters, that pen name, which she claims has some ridiculous origin story, is also most of the name of a guy who was famous for doing extremely unethical experiments in gay conversion therapy. He was Robert Galbraith Heath, but he's still so well-known that his Wikipedia page comes up on the first page of results if you Google Robert Galbraith, despite how famous J.K. Rowling and hence Robert Galbraith, the pen name, are. I remember hearing an anecdote many years ago when I was still a Harry Potter fan about how she came up with the name Horcrux and how she had been searching for something like a word that she felt was appropriate to the thing. and that wasn't already in use. And so she described how she used Google to search through all of her options. So I know this lady knows how to Google something that she's going to name, especially something important like herself. So anyway, in hindsight, this is kind of a gigantic like bedsheet sized red flag. Under this pen name, she wrote a book in 2014 with a trans suspect who tries to stab someone. It was so bad. is treated to threats of how unpleasant prison would be for her, quote-unquote pre-op. So that was super, super gross. In March of 2018, Rowling accidentally liked a tweet calling trans women men in dresses. She later claimed that she was trying to screenshot it to research it further. A few other questionable likes were similarly dismissed as middle-aged accidents. It turned out that she also followed a bunch of gross turf accounts, but this was explained as her following lots of people whose ideas she felt were thought-provoking. So it's, it's just that she has a variety of people that she likes to follow to find out what I garbage see. they're spewing. I don't know. People got mad briefly, but it died down. 
And it mostly left me with that all too familiar feeling that everyone is terrible, but it's going to go away and no one's going to remember that she's probably a secret turf. So every time someone goes, oh, like queer culture is knowing your Harry Potter house, I'd have to be like, well, actually, and it would just turn into another one of those people. Eh. Luckily, she solved that problem for you. <laughs> wow, did she ever. So at the time, trans writer Caitlin Burns published an article about J.K. Rowling's transphobia that boiled down to, yeah, she's transphobic, but made excuses for her and granted her the grace of understanding that she was living in a culture where the media has spread so many hateful lies about trans women in particular for so many years. She wrote, Ultimately, the answer is yes, she is transphobic, at least in the ways that so many average cisgender people can be. Just, yeah, but what are we going to do about it? If you're going to cancel everybody who says anything slightly problematic or likes a bad tweet, you're going to end up with no media to consume. However... In 2019, there was a brief but turbulent drama around one Maya Forstatter, a consultant of otherwise very little note. I'll read from Vox since they did such a good job explaining this situation. Throughout September 2018 and over the course of several different conversations in several different contexts, Forstatter tweeted and retweeted a number of critical and dehumanizing things about both trans people in general and one specific non-binary person in particular. The tweets made staff members at the CGD uncomfortable, and ultimately in March 2019, the company declined to renew Forstatter's contract. That is an important distinction. No one was ever fired. She had a contract. At the end of the contract, they decided not to renew it because she was so transphobic. She was making people in England uncomfortable. How how transphobic do you have to be? (laughs) So she wasn't fired. She, her contract wasn't renewed. She responded by suing the company and its director, claiming that not renewing her contract was workplace discrimination. No. Cool times. Rowling decided to throw her hat in that ring for some reason and painted it as Maya being forced out of her job for saying that sex is real. Just a wild accusation that had no basis in claim once you looked at it at all. I've had sex. (laughs) (laughs) The wider internet, and anyone still unconvinced, next got wind that Joanne Rowling had some serious problems with trans women in June of 2020 when she retweeted a news story that used the respectful and accurate language quote, people who menstruate. Rowling mocked this language, saying, I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out, followed by several misspellings of woman. It's interesting to me that a huge number of accounts that I read about this only pick it up here in June of 2020. Although I feel like at that point, it was fairly well known in the queer community that the pattern was clear and the excuses were wearing thin. Like we all knew you're a secret turf. We know. There was no secret. But yeah. she yeah. was trying to keep it on the down low. Yeah. She stopped trying at this point. <laughs> the backlash to this support of Maya was swift. And anyone who maybe was still hoping that their favorite author would sheepishly apologize after being reminded that trans and non-binary folks exist, which happens so often, were sadly mistaken. And Rowling doubled down immediately, like the same day, throwing some more transphobic garbage on the fire in the process. And a few days after doubling down, so this was the 6th, on the 10th, she quintupled down by posting a long essay on her website full of extremely garbage information about trans people and their medical decisions and 
stuff about how she put particular emphasis on her belief that sex is real, and if sex isn't real, that erases the lived experience of women globally. So I don't think she understands the distinction between sex and gender. So first of all, let's start there, but whatever, that's not important. But she believes that if trans people exist, then her suffering as a woman is not real. Very confusing. She is also extremely against trans kids getting any kind of help because she's worried that we as a society are pushing kids into transness and medicalizing them. All of the same boring stuff. Yeah, because that's happening. Right, yeah. We're pushing children into having fun, fun experiences with being misgendered all the time. Rowling attempted to explain her stance on trans identity with a, I am oppressed, therefore won't you consider how this affects me if other people get attention. Oh, the good old, but (laughs) I'm the center of attention. Oh, some more toddler logic going on here. Right. Quote, especially gutting was the essay's self-centeredness. Rowling masked obvious transphobia as a personal appeal to reason, rooted in her own experience as a woman and an abuse survivor. She asked for empathy and respect for her experiences while showing none for her targets. It's a quote from Aja Romano, a Harry Potter community organizer. I will say that at this point, it felt refreshing to feel like finally nobody could deny that she was like, for real, a turf, and we shouldn't <laughs> give her money anymore. I thought that that was going to be agreed. She was spreading lies about trans people, like they were right there, you could see them, clear lies, and actively harming people. She kept writing books under her Robert Galbraith pen name, though, and people kept buying them and her other stuff. If anyone didn't know this story at this point, and I said, what would be the most cartoon villain thing for her to do at this point in her career? What might you say? Does anyone not know what she wrote next? Oh, I know what she wrote next. (laughs) uh, Do you want to guess? I know. The first thing that comes to mind will be correct. Think like a toddler, Laura. Oh, I, I don't even know. Her next book was about a man who dresses up as a woman to hunt and murder cis women. Oh, God. Oh, God. Why not? Why not? Yeah, that that couldn't possibly prove her point anymore. <sighs> under this pen name. Oh, yes, under Robert Galbraith. And is it known that this is her pen oh, yeah. name at this point? Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, she okay. revealed it after the, the okay. first book. She I'm not prove in that... the literary world, yeah. so I just learned this tonight. But again, did not, like, okay... Authors do stupid stuff. And go on. (laughs) So that book was called Trouble Blood, and it was published in 2020. In 2022, another book followed. Let me just quote the summary from (laughs) In the book, which is over a thousand pages long, a YouTube-based cartoonist's work is accused of being racist, transphobic, and ableist. She is then doxxed, threatened with rape and death, and is ultimately stabbed to death in a cemetery. According to one reviewer's take, the book, quote, takes aim at social justice warriors. And it's so badly written. Like, even bad for Joanne. Well, she's just, like, getting them out as fast as she can at this point, right? Like, she has to provide them for her adoring fans. Rowling claims that no matter how similar it is to her own experiences, nothing in this book was based on her own experiences at all. Critics have decried the book as, quote, hilariously self-persecuting. And, quote, (laughs) beyond parody. (laughs) it's pages and pages of like message board things just going back and forth and messages oh it's so bad bunch most of it is just reading tweets that seem to be directly copied off of threats that she's gotten not even of course the first draft of this book was written before those things happened according to jk (laughs) Rowling. yeah 
Fun times. So she's got the gift of prophecy. Oh, Lord. According to Lark Malachi Gray, who hosts the queer Harry Potter podcast, The Gaily Prophet, (laughs) he told NPR over email that he finds the situation, quote, deeply embarrassing for Rowling. (laughs) 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 But but said as a queer man. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And following. (laughs) She has published a 1,000 page self insert fanfiction where she's the victim. It's the kind of behavior that you'd expect from a petulant teenager, not a grown adult with immense wealth and power, he added. I have no idea what she expected, but seeing the internet fill with jokes about the book has been an absolute joy after all the harm she has caused my community over the past several years. Yeah, it was a beautiful day on Transfer. to that. It was so (laughs) funny to watch all of the screenshots come in and be like, I think this one's based on me! (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's surprising... For how much power she's amassed, how thin her skin remains mm, to this day. Mm. Well, if you never look outwards, like if you never look outside of yourself, you never have to question and you, you never take the time, nor do you prioritize like thickening your skin and understanding criticism. Like that's the thing. She has no tolerance for it. And she doesn't, mm. she has never believed that she should have to have criticism and she seems like whatever her experiences are that should then shield her for anything she should do ever yes yeah, like i was picked on once therefore i can steal from banks and nobody should stop me <laughs> so that's the way that it works right yeah. like yeah like she's just it's very she just refuses to look outwards or grow mm. the first draft of my segment was based around the socrates quote about the unexamined life is not worth living and I'm seeing a strange through line in all of these <laughs> cancellations. Shocker. Yeah. yeah. I had to get that in there somewhere because I was so proud of it. Even back when she was like solidly center lefty politics, there was some evidence of this behavior that you're talking about, right? Like she would, she had a history of sending her followers after people who had no power mm-hmm. if they pissed her off for you know, oh. silly reasons. Yeah. I remember she got criticized, like mildly criticized for the way she treated like North American indigenous mm-hmm. sort of magical traditions oh, and right, so for right, supplementary right, right. books and she just w- went ballistic. Yeah. yeah, it was not a good look for no. sure. But however, if the only impact that J.K. Rowling was having on the world now is putting out deeply embarrassing novels... I wouldn't be as worked up about her as I am. The facts are that her immense wealth and social capital combined make her a fairly unique menace to the trans community. Especially since, unlike many transphobic bigots, she actually seems to care about fucking over trans people specifically and has thrown her voice behind that cause. Most transphobic bigots care about other things way more. She seems to care about this specifically. (laughs) There is a specific breed of online transphobia that just gets in there and rots every single part of your brain, though. And she's completely the poster child for this. Mm -hmm. They can't think of anything else. Yeah, she's she's even surpassed Glinner on that, eh? Well, because she still has a platform. Yeah. We we canceled Glinner. He was a TV writer in the in the UK. He wrote oh. like the IT crowd and everything. Yeah, oh. Father Ted. Yeah, he oh, wrote right. Father, he wrote Ted, Father, too. Father yeah. Ted. Yeah, we watched the IT crowd until it took that sudden transphobic turn. Glinner. Anyway, <laughs> his wife his wife left him. His kids won't talk to him. None of his family will. Get I mean, him. like yeah. life has consequences. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> yeah. 
Rowling and other TERFs, which is trans exclusionary radical feminists, and is a term that they came up with and now insist is a slur, but I'm going to continue to use it. <laughs> TERFs feel like the spike in reported gender dysphoria and increasing numbers of people under 18 seeking trans-affirming health care is evidence of misogyny and homophobia. That don't make no sense. Stay with me here. She thinks that little girls are being encouraged to hate their bodies and become men, and that little gay boys are being encouraged to transition so that they can be straight women instead. This is the liberal agenda. Let me tell you how much that don't work. <laughs> <laughs> she has doubled and tripled down on this rather than believe the evidence that when our world becomes a slightly more welcoming place, more of us can be ourselves. And that it's clear in this generation that far fewer kids feel terrified to tell their parents who they are. So they get to get care faster. Mm -hmm. Because Rowling believes these false things, she's using her talents to fight what she sees as a danger. Quoting from Politico, Trans rights advocates say Rowling, a self-professed expert at monster creation, is using these skills to whip up a false narrative that casts trans people as a threat to women and their rights. Fiona Robertson, an activist who worked on the gender identification overhaul that Rowling objected to, called the novelist's intervention in the debate a perfect campaign in terms of radicalizing people. Rowling's essay, Robertson said, kicked off a vicious circle as, quote, a huge influx of people with no grounding and no knowledge on this issue, adopted language perceived as hateful by the trans community, which responded by lashing back. Skeptics of trans rights who had cast their objections as just asking questions found permission in Rowling's letter to go full in on the cruelty, Robertson said. It enabled and ennobled, she added. People felt like they had a champion on their side, and significantly, a champion with a fuck ton of money. Ugh. <laughs> Screw the rules, I have money. Yeah. She's this group's Peter Thiel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. they, they can point to her and say, she wrote Harry Potter. Like, she knows children? Like, that doesn't make sense, but it, it equates in people's minds. Okay. Politicians have used her fame and popularity to raise questions about trans rights. In 2020, a Republican senator, who would never have voted for it anyway, quoted Rowling's essay to explain why he was voting against a bill that would add sexual orientation and gender identity to the list of classes protected from discrimination. Rowling also fought against the passage of the Gender Recognition Reform Bill in Scotland, which would allow an easier process for transgender people to be legally recognized as their preferred gender. What a danger! She wore a t-shirt on Instagram after it passed, calling the head of the party who passed it a destroyer of women's rights. In addition to all of this, Rowling firmly believes that her fans believe the way that she does. She has said that she believes that 90% of her fans think the way she does, but the culture of fear created by the left keeps them quiet because they're afraid that we're going to murder them? Cancel them. We're going to cancel them. <laughs> yeah, the dangerous, dangerous canceling. She is literally able to sleep at night knowing how many people she's hurt because she looks at her royalty checks. This is actual things that she has said. Mm -hmm. She has typed them on the internet. What? How do you sleep at night when you know yeah, how many yeah. people you've hurt? She replied, I look at my royalty checks and I feel fine. Oh this is why God. we need to not give her any more fucking money. Not She's a dime. so awful. <laughs> oh, like, I mean, like, all of that was awful. That's just so gross like icky yeah oh yeah and but she enjoys that it gets that kind of attention she yeah enjoys evoking that feeling of oh this person i don't like is successful yeah Fuck the haters on rich sounds more like a rick ross line than 
<laughs> here we are. But once you get to a certain level. Yeah. Yeah. But that is so crystal clear to me that the lesson of this whole thing is if you care about your trans friends and family, stop giving money or eyeballs to her properties. Yeah. Or even things like that game that was... Well, there were so many other problems with that. I know, but a game came out and said, well, she's not directly involved. She's still going to get some royalties from it. Just mm-hmm. yeah. don't download a match three freaking puzzle game because it's got a freaking broom on it. <laughs> or the... Oh, that game. I thought you were talking about the Hogwarts Legacy. Oh, yeah. We're not talking about the anti-Semitic game mm, that came out, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Oh yeah, like, we're not going to talk about as last one sort of talking. Like I said, I'm not talking about the books at all. There's yeah. so many things wrong with the books. We're not going there. My very next paragraph begins. Despite its many inherent flaws, <laughs> Harry Potter has influenced generations of kids to grow into adults who turned out to be more progressive than the books themselves and the woman who authored them. Speaking personally, I truly believe that young adult fiction led me on the path to who I am today. I wanted to be the kind of person who would do things like join Dumbledore's army and fight Umbridge's tyranny. Books like Harry Potter taught me that the people in charge are not always correct, and sometimes you need to break the rules to do what is right. It's like the adults who wrote those books then immediately forgot the lessons they were trying to teach us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, they like... They did like, do but that on the not wrong. Like that. They're on the wrong side of it. That's the thing. Like she thinks she's being them. Yeah. yeah. That's that's oh, which yeah. which and as we've we're so close to completing that series with our kids mm-hmm. and rereading it, it has been eye opening, mm-hmm. and I see that a lot. And so there's a lot of like, yes, and <laughs> God, if I have to read the description, his high, clear voice one more time, <laughs> oh. describe Voldemort's voice using different words. Any other- Come on, it's always those words. Okay. Also. She was clearly very lazy by the time that seventh book came out. It could have been half the length. She did not have an editor at that point. I do not recommend, and you you guys know this, do not recommend starting any of the Orson Scott card books with your children. Oh, no. no. Same problem. I'm sure. Yeah. I, I found this other quote from Aja Romano as well, the community organizer, that I really enjoyed. Harry Potter fans can say we want to keep the Rowling we started the books with, not the one we have now. But that's difficult. The Rowling we have now is still tweeting, and no effort to separate the art from the artist can ever be fully successful when the artist is right there, reminding you that she intended for her art to reflect her prejudice all along. Mm, yep. That's good. Yeah, right? We talk about death of the author a lot, but it's hard to kill the author who keeps reminding us who she is and what she's about. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to end with this tweet from Eric Hinton from 2019. Again, before most of these media accounts pick up even. (laughs) Impressive that J.K. Rowling has managed to completely incinerate all of the goodwill she accrued from creating the most successful youth fantasy series of all time in just under a decade. Anything is possible, folks, if you just keep tweeting. (laughs) (laughs) Soon that will be impossible. (laughs) I forget how much people aren't on Twitter. Yeah, I'm not now. I've officially cancelled my account, but how much this is not the day-to-day knowledge of people. Everything that we've said tonight, and how I'm scared that we will not have this immediate and open forum, that we don't have it anymore. There's nothing to replace it. 
I'm not just doing a eulogy for Twitter, even though that seems to be where I'm going with this. I think your point, it's hard because I'm on Twitter, but barely. I check I every once in a while because I don't have the time for it. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy to keep up with it. But you're right. There's like a dual reality going on. And there's things that only, not only exist on there, but if you can't be on there for whatever reason, you miss a lot of these things. And then maybe you're unknowingly doing something or you ha- there was information that you really needed, but it's not, it doesn't transfer that same way. So I think that that divide was already happening. And now it's like, I can see that loss. And at the same time, like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It was a medium where in-groups could gather, yeah. but people who were not in those groups could also learn from the in-groups. Right. Yes. And there right. was so much that... And you weren't, so it wasn't scared. filtered through what will give us news ratings or something. Yeah. Like, it was just like, hey, we found each other. Let's just keep doing this. And yeah. and I don't have time, as you were saying, to go out and research all of these things that I would learn and then go research about because I had a gateway. So... Mm-hmm. And I mean, unless they break through to the community at large, I mean, some of these figures loom a little bit larger than others, but some of them are able to get away with their nonsense for as long as they can because it's only a select group of people that know about it mm-hmm. until a certain right. point. And then it, and it remains a thorn in the side for the people who are fans of that thing, but... This just made me think of the phrase, well, he's never done that in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you remember the visceral reaction we had while driving down Osborne and there was that person wearing a I Heart JK hoodie? Yeah. Walking down Osborne in the year of our Lord 2022? Yeah. It was just like, <laughs> do you, are you looking to get punched in the face right now? <laughs> I really wish there had been a puddle, quite honestly. <laughs> Well, I don't remember. Have I told the story of trivia when... I don't know if you told it on the podcast. Okay. One of the times that I have been the proudest of our city ever is when we went to trivia when we thought that we could maybe go do things again after we had gotten our vaccines. Spoiler, we could not. But we did it. (laughs) We went to trivia and one of the categories was name these authors based only on their photos. And it was a fairly large and fairly full bar. Mm-hmm. And a picture of J.K. Rowling came up on the screen, and it wasn't like one table started it, and then everybody else picked it up. Everybody just booed immediately. Yep. The whole room just exploded in boo. And the, the trivia master was just like, whoa, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a glorious moment of like, yes, I like these people. <laughs> Canceled. <laughs> sort of, I, felt, I remember feeling the same way about hearing the booze for the first time for, for Hogan when he was, when he made that appearance. Yeah, that's what I thought of too. I've been doing that for so long. <laughs> I'm glad some people are hearing me. It's, yeah. it, it is nice when other people start to catch on because it, you, it feels like it takes forever for some oh, of these things. Making yeah. friends as, as an adult is just going, what do you hate? I hate this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what do you like. Good segments, everybody. Yeah. That was a fun show, despite how many awful things we learned. (laughs) We're at two hours, eight minutes right now. I have a question for everybody. Yeah. What would you be canceled for? Mm. I mean, I'm already canceled by about half the nerd community in Winnipeg for being too social justice warrior-y, if that counts. Mm. They fucking hate me. I mean, same. (laughs) (laughs) I'm worried about how publicly I advocate for direct confrontation with bigots and driving them out of public spaces and stuff. 
And that's not what some people want in a physician. So at some point, it's going to be something that I'm going to have to be worried about with my licensing body. But that's not yet. <laughs> we have the clinic plans. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> we I need just... a licensed physician to have a clinic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think for me personally, it, it might well be I have, I'm sort of in the, the world of IT and passionate hatred of Silicon Valley and everything that there is that they're doing. And probably more so than Wall Street. It's kind of terrifying. No, no, Kyle. You know what you're going to get canceled yeah. on this podcast. You know what oh, you're going to get canceled. Podcast. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll be canceled. I know what I'm going to be canceled for. That's because I'm a capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> he said he's a capitalist. I like how his little No, it, yeah. It is a point of shame amongst a group, several groups of my friends. So. Listeners, we're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm progressive in other ways, I promise. <laughs> what are you getting canceled for, Laura? Oh, I'm perfect. <laughs> what would Touché. What would your children cancel you for? Ooh. Oh, so many things. <laughs> Sourdough bread. <laughs> bedtime. Sourdough bread, bedtime chores, not letting them watch infinity television. I don't know what else. Jem would cancel me for interrupting him, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> also for telling him how to do things. Yeah. Thanks, honey, for putting up with me. I'm very laid back. <laughs> As am I. <laughs> Kyle's known you for ten minutes and just what else did I use saying that? <laughs> this is his relaxed face. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, like, what the left would cancel me for. I don't know. I've held many problematic ideas in the past, and the posts are all still there. Yeah. I think like, I think that's the important thing is a willingness to learn. Yeah. Difference. Don't double down when yeah. you find out new information. Mm. That's yeah. the key. I, I have been wrong several times before, yeah. and I'm yeah. more than happy to admit it and show where I've grown. I have made a brand out of being wrong. And admitting it. <laughs> we were actually saying, Lauren and I, that maybe it's time for another What Have You Changed Your Mind About episode. Mm. I know yeah. you were not the biggest fan of that episode, but I think those are good. I'm not the biggest fan? Yeah, I Is thought it? you didn't love that. Oh, no, I, no, I Jim I like loves it. talking about when he's changed his mind on things. Jim loves talking. It's been a long time since we did a What Have You Changed Your Mind About. Anyway, All right. we should do Tangents! Something See, nice. We can't possibly do a different one because that's 50% of what we do on here. <laughs> Or something nice this month, everyone. I took some time to make my standard, traditional, annual Christmas cake. Yay! Yay! I made fruitcake. Cake. Now you get to baste it in booze for a month? It is basting as we speak. Woo! Best mm -hmm. cake. <laughs> <laughs> I am still thinking about how adorable the mid-season finale, even though I hate mid-season finales, the whole thing can go away, title for Lower Decks. How cute it was. How adorable it was. It was called The Stars at Night. And it was about the Texas-class ships. <laughs> and that just tickled me. There's a song that goes, The stars at night are clear and bright. And then there's a bunch of clapping as it's deep in the heart of Texas. Marissa will drop it in here. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you calling from? Texas. Where? Honest. Listen, I'll prove it. The stars at night are big and bright. 
So it, that's cute. Just amused me. I still like. I was the biggest Star Trek fan in the world. We haven't watched season three of Discovery. Never I I never finished Picard, even season one, which is. We also don't have time. Yeah, no, like, I know. I know. Time, so like, I never. I haven't watched kids, any lower decks. Watch this stuff. Any lower it's decks very at all? Yeah. yeah, like I know. Yeah. I know. One day, but I just Jack. haven't. Like, yeah, one day. One day. Yeah, but that's it. That's just been playing in my head repeatedly. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say that that's my something nice. That is something nice. My something nice is that I finished a paper like three weeks ahead of its due date. Wow. First in the history of my entire, my entire career. Well, so it was, its due date got pushed back by three weeks with notice before that. And I had a lot of other things due. So I just did it. So yay. Good job with that executive function there. Kind of. Hate you. Oh. <laughs> I'm just drowning. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's fine. <laughs> I actually have a couple of things. One in the, I guess, more about what I was talking about and the one more personal. There was a woman who, I'm trying to get her actual name, because it's hard to remember for wrestlers. They're, they're <laughs> real, real between Soraya Beavis, known in WWE as Paige. Her career basically ended by neck injuries mm. in 2017, and she was 25 years old at the time. Oh, no. And I mean, it's a business that is really, really difficult. And she's a person who had been wrestling since she was 12, 13 years old. So those years really do wear on you, especially when you're growing. Mm-hmm. And she managed to get a clearance and was in her first match age 30 this year first match back and was perfectly healthy and fine and seems to have perhaps a few more years of career left in her so it was very incredible to see i got chills right now you guys (laughs) i'm back nice and then, on a more personal note, Ashlyn and I, I got the opportunity to make pasta for the first time, nice. and it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I've been missing out with all this box pasta. Handmade <laughs> pasta is super good. It's yep. Good. Is it worth the work, though? Yes. It oh! Was. It was. <laughs> nice! Sounds delightful. That was a good meal. And y'all didn't destroy the kitchen too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of. the person who cleaned up after the making pasta. What do you say? Yeah, it was very good. Well, I was going to talk about how I got my I've gotten my cooking mojo back. I feel like I've done a lot more making things and feeding myself lately, which is very exciting. I made a lot of cookies recently, and now they're all gone, which is sad. There's one cookie left. <laughs> <laughs> But I've also been able to go on a lot of, unfortunately, sunset walks in the park recently. <laughs> I've had to learn that when leaving the house after three o'clock, I need to bring a headlamp, which is depressing. <laughs> However, I've gotten many pictures of beautiful sunsets in the forest, and I'm hoping that the unseasonably warm weather stays around, selfishly. Because <laughs> I like when it is just around that freezing mark. They are rooting for climate change. <laughs> I'll be dead soon. 
doesn't matter. You also got that lovely new toy to take these videos of these sunsets. You have a new gimbal? Yeah, I've been taking a lot of like nature videos and I don't know what I'm going to do with any of them, honestly, but maybe one day I'll have memories of all these places I hiked, but I got a, a fancy tool to hold my phone so that my videos are now smooth and... They're for content creators, right? Like, you're supposed to use them to follow people around the room while they do stuff or whatever, but I'm using it to take pictures of sunsets. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, better than 99% of the content Fair. that is being made with them, so. Brain brain idea. <laughs> As opposed to all of the other ideas. Okay, so there's brain ideas, there's stomach ideas, I think. Idea, yeah. idea. idea. You should make a real chill TikTok that is just like, here's two minutes of nature videos. Lauren, I can't do TikTok. This is what happened before. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a content creator. It, making me do one of those things every day, every time I've tried to make that goal, it's like the only goal I've I failed know. at making a stream about. I just, social media, being an actual small business owner, I can't do it. Because we're old. We just can't. Can't pivot to video. You need to post something every day, preferably like five times a day to stay. It's absurd. So show your stuff to anything. And then I just don't have the energy. That's like true. it's, it's well, because nobody does because we, we've reached the point where it's only teams. So people who can employ several people to do all this kind of stuff. Yeah. You can't enter the market anymore. Here's what I'm going to do to get my, my feeling like this is worth it. I'm going to resurrect my YouTube channel that I think I still have. And upload hours of unedited walking through the forest content and then email it to all of the people whose content I have stolen for various things I have used and been like, would you like some nature videos? (laughs) 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 It will be my karmic return to the universe. Excellent. There you go. It's a plan. Thank you for joining me this evening, everyone. Thank you, Ashlyn. What are we talking about next month, Laura? <laughs> didn't we decide this? No, 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 we didn't. Oh, we... I said I could. Pro- I said that I could maybe come up with something if it's in between Christmas and New Year's, right? But until then, it might be a like last minute kind of thing. Come on, no headspace. I got an agreement. That's all I cared about. Apparently, okay. And we just yeah. continued on from there. Wait, the, one. the Nobel Prize is one we could do. Yeah, that one would be that would be fine. Let me think on it. Yeah. Or we could do Cricket Cast. I'm just saying. I think it would be really funny if we put crickets and then we talked about crickets. I call protein of the future. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) I'm so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Laura needs to go to bed. Let's go, everyone. Good night. Good night. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. <laughs>